from Bloomberg Law, this is Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. The prosecution in the murder trial of Derek Chauvin is expected to wrap up early next week, clearing the way for the defense to start calling their own witnesses. So if you haven't been able to keep up with all of the developments in this story, we thought it'd be a good time to go back over what's happened so far. Joining me to talk about the trial is Adam Taylor, a former attorney and legislative analyst for Bloomberg Government who's been reporting on the Chauvin trial all along. Adam, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. So in their opening arguments, it seemed like the prosecution came right out and laid their cards on the table, that their strategy would be to direct jurors' attention to the video of George Floyd being pinned to the ground as often as possible. Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell told jurors that the most important number they would hear was nine minutes and 29 seconds. You will learn what happened in that nine minutes and 29 seconds. The most important numbers you will hear in this trial are 929. What happened in those nine minutes and 29 seconds when Mr. Derek Chauvin was applying this excessive force to the body of Mr. George Floyd? Yeah, that's. I think that is their their organizing principle. They they've had a ton of witnesses and and evidence brought in to kind of just circle around that and show that no matter what the defense is going to say, this nine minutes and twenty nine seconds, you can believe your eyes, as as uh, Jerry Blackwell said. So on the other side, the opening statement from Chauvin's defense attorney Eric Nelson, his job is to do just the opposite to convince the jury that what they're seeing on the video wasn't the full story, right? That there were other circumstances to consider. That's right. He brought up the the hundreds of pieces of evidence and the the hundreds of potential witnesses that could be called to say this is a lot more complex than the the simple bystander video or even the the officer body-worn cameras, Uh, that, that footage that has been put into evidence as well. He wants to make this as technical and kind of divorced from simple evidence of a proceeding as he can. So he his strategy has to be to drill down on minutia and try to introduce a seed of doubt through something like that. Was he, he he's focused a lot on was Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck or was it on his shoulder blade? And a lot of little questions like that just to try to put a seed of doubt into at least one juror's mind about what happened. Because that's all he has to do to win, right? Is he just needs to not have a unanimous guilty verdict. As I said, the prosecution seems like they're grounding their strategy in the video. As such, we heard from a number of eyewitnesses early on. Adam, do you think that was a good strategy? And who stood out for you here? A lot of those eyewitnesses stood out. Um, There was the Minneapolis firefighter and EMT who was there, who was almost in the street. She was asking for permission to come check for a pulse on George Floyd. And she was saying that they were killing him. Uh, So was uh, an MMA fighter there, a mixed martial arts fighter who was on the scene. He he was an early witness, very early witness for the the prosecution. He called out Chauvin for... uh, for, for kneeling on his neck, saying it was a blood choke, uh, a specific type of move to render someone unconscious in MMA uh, by restricting blood flow. Um, there was also someone who wasn't an eyewitness, but was a very important witness, I think, and that was Courtney Ross, 
who is George Floyd's girlfriend uh, of at least the last couple years. And they, she, she went into the drug use they had together. They were both uh, suffering from an opioid addiction and they'd both tried to gone clean, tried to go clean at various points. Um, And, and she really just provided a view into him as a person um, and what's known as a spark of life witness in Minnesota. I think the testimony that really stood out for me and also got a lot of attention in the coverage was Darnella Frazier, who was walking to the grocery store with her young cousin to get snacks. Ms. Frazier is now 18 and said in her testimony that she still feels regret for not physically engaging with the officers. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and, and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. But it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. I think Frazier's comments were typical of many of the eyewitnesses who were there. You know, very emotional testimony from people who've witnessed something really traumatic. We also heard that from Genevieve Hansen, an off-duty Minneapolis firefighter who broke into tears on the witness stand as she recalled how she wasn't allowed to give any medical assistance or advise the officers on what to do. When you couldn't do that, how did that make you feel? Totally distressed. Were you frustrated? Yes. Ms. Hansen, you know, as I told you, we can take our time, so feel free to just take a minute. Okay. Later in the week, we heard Eric Nelson make another argument that the neighborhood where the event took place was a high crime neighborhood and that as the onlookers and the crowd around the officers grew increasingly agitated, that represented another factor that may have influenced the officers' decision making. You should check on him. He's not responsive right now. Back off. So, Adam, what do you make of that line of thinking, kind of implicating the neighborhood in the culpability here? Yeah, it's an interesting approach, um, especially when you have two of the eyewitnesses who are, at the time, little girls going to the corner store for a snack. I mean, how, how dangerous is it if little girls are walking unsupervised? But he he's trying to play up the reasonable officer standard and that's a totality of the circumstances you have to look at everything to judge what a reasonable officer would do in in this case Derek Chauvin's place and so he's trying to say that the crowd was so unruly and he was at such a heightened state because he knew about crime in the neighborhood um, that he was reasonable in kneeling on George Floyd's neck for the duration that he did and it's it's not a strong hand to my mind because you have so many different at this point you have so many different witnesses coming in and refuting it you have the little girls who walk to the store by themselves you have the police chief saying that it the way he performed the knee hold and the duration were both against policy you have the training experts that the Minneapolis police have brought in you have uh, LAPD sergeant uh, Steger who came in as a, a paid witness for the prosecution to say that the force should have stopped as soon as uh, George Floyd stopped resisting. 
We also heard from Donald Williams, a bouncer and former mixed martial arts fighter who was one of the people on the scene pleading with the officers to get off Floyd. But defense attorney Nelson said he was also doing more than just passively observing. And just a little warning here, this next section contains some language that probably isn't fit for kids. Do you recall saying, I dare you to touch me like that, I swear I'll slap the fuck out of both of you? Yeah, I did. I meant it. So again, sir, it's fair to say that you grew angrier and angrier. No, I grew professional and professional and I stayed in my body. You can't pay me out to be angry. One of the big reasons the crowd was being unruly is they were yelling specifically at Chauvin to get off of George Floyd. They were not generally unruly or threatening. In I, I think the video makes this very clear. They were telling him to get off of George Floyd, and he stood there and only looked up once, um, but mostly just looked at the ground. He He didn't appear to feel threatened or anything in that moment and I think that's that's one of the reasons why the video was so haunting and compelling for so many people and I, I've had to watch it much more than I have felt comfortable with in, in covering the trial and he's just he's stoically there um, it doesn't appear that he's affected by the crowd particularly especially since he's not doing the one thing they were asking of him. On Monday prosecutor Steve Slisher led a line of questioning that I think stands as his team's strongest case against Derek Chauvin so far. Not because the witness testimony was especially riveting, but because it comes from the Minneapolis police chief himself, Madaria Arredondo. Once Mr. Floyd, and this is based on my viewing of the the, the videos, um, once Mr. Floyd had stopped resisting, and certainly once he was... um, in distress and trying to verbalize that, that should have stopped. Um, there's there's an initial reasonableness in trying to just get him under control over the in the first few seconds, but but uh, once there was no longer any resistance, and clearly when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless, to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. In fact, nine other current and former Minneapolis Police Department officers also testified in the past two weeks. And unlike other use of force cases, what struck me as pretty unusual here was to see so many officers take the stand against a one-time colleague. Yeah, the blue wall of silence is not making an appearance in this trial at all. We have Everyone from the the training officer who led his trainings to the chief of police, Madaria Arredondo, coming into court and saying that Chauvin did not accord himself with policy or with training. And so they're almost throwing him under the bus on this for, for what he did, whether he deserves that or not. Adam, what do you think would be going through the mind of a juror hearing testimony like this from other police officers 
And not just any officers, but the people who actually trained and supervised Derek Chauvin. Yeah, I think it's it's baked into our society in a lot of ways to defer to police officers. And, you know, certainly in, in the legal world, there's a lot of policies uh, from qualitative immunity to anything else that says defer to police officers who are making very difficult decisions in the heat of the moment. But when you have this long line of other police officers saying what this guy did was wrong and it's not that's not what we do or what we allow. I think it makes it easier for the jury, certainly, to say this officer was wrong. He broke the rules. He broke the law and he killed a person. Yeah. And it seems like the chief has to walk a pretty fine line here by testifying against Derek Chauvin without indicting the entire institution of policing in the process. So is this the classic, you know, one bad apple position that he's making here? Yeah, it it definitely is. Um, and, and that's been something that I've seen advocates calling out, um, that this trial is, you know, the, the police who are testifying for the state are making this about one bad apple and not the entire system, which I think is kind of how a murder trial has to work because George Floyd, you can make the argument that a lot of things contributed, including police culture or whatever else, but you can't put the system on trial in in this case, it's Derek Chauvin on trial. Based on the case the prosecution's trying to build, do you think any of this testimony from law enforcement experts saying that Chauvin's use of force was excessive or not the way officers were trained, does any of this get out in front of the defense's lead argument that George Floyd died because of an underlying health issue? Well, the defense is really trying to make two separate arguments, and if they win either of them, then they, they kind of win the case. And the first is around use of force. And because if what Derek Chauvin did was within the realm of policy, it was reasonable, then it's not going to be considered murder. It might be manslaughter, but it won't be considered second degree murder or third degree murder, which have higher sentences. The other question is cause of death. And if the defense wins on cause of death, they win across the board and and Derek Chauvin will walk away a free man. Beyond the testimony from the chief, there's also testimony from Johnny Mercil, the lieutenant who was in charge of use of force training at the time of George Floyd's death. And this is the part of the prosecution's argument where it gets a bit less clear in my mind. It was during Mercil's testimony that we heard about this sliding scale for use of force, that officers actually do have the authority to respond with force as they deem necessary in that moment, But in the case of a man who was already handcuffed, they say that didn't present a clear and present danger. Still, it's not as cut and dry as some of the other arguments the prosecution was making. And Eric Nelson was able to make that point, I think, that these kinds of decisions aren't supposed to be judged on 2020 hindsight. Yeah, I think he gained some momentum, especially at the end of the long string of witnesses, uh, about use of force. I think Judge Cahill was also getting a little frustrated with how long uh, that that string of witnesses was going. Nelson made the argument that officers' behaviors are to be judged objectively from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene. And he he tried to make clear that all the considerations, and all he has to do is convince one juror that the crowd was unruly and so Chauvin was distracted, or that the duration was 
reasonable given the the totality of the circumstances and i think he he made up some ground i don't know if it's enough to be reasonable doubt but he definitely made up some ground on that and so it's it's really really possible that the jury will find that chauvin acted within police protocols both last week and this week, we also heard from a number of medical personnel, often painting a grim picture of George Floyd's final moments. Paramedics found that Floyd had no pulse upon arriving at the scene, and on Thursday, Martin Tobin, a respiratory expert, said even a healthy person would have died under the restraints that Chauvin used on Floyd. Have you formed an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty on the cause of Mr. Floyd's death? Yes, I have. Uh, would you please tell the jury what that opinion or opinions are? Yes, yes. Uh, Mr. Floyd died from a low level of oxygen and this caused damage to his brain that we see and it also caused arrhythmia that caused his heart to stop. We also heard from Dr. Bill Smock, the Louisville Metro Police Department surgeon. Based on the evidence, Smock said it was his assessment that George Floyd died primarily from oxygen deprivation and not because of drug use or any underlying health conditions. Mr. Floyd died from positional asphyxia, which is a fancy way of saying he died because he had no oxygen left in his body. The Hennepin County Medical Examiner, who performed the first autopsy on George Floyd, testified on Friday. Dr. Andrew Baker determined that George Floyd died from cardiopulmonary arrest and that George Floyd's heart disease and use of fentanyl were contributing factors to his death, but they were not the direct cause. You know, to kind of just bring all of this back together, the thing that stands out in my mind, Adam, is just the amount of video evidence on both the prosecution and the defense side. You know, everything from security cameras to video taken by observers to police body camera footage. It's just a lot to take in, especially when someone is telling you that what you're seeing with your own eyes doesn't necessarily tell the full story. Right. This as many witnesses as the state is calling and as the defense will call, this is really all about the video, right? And it's people interpreting the events that we know happened as opposed to arguing about what events occurred. And so we have these eyewitnesses who are there to kind of talk about the their feelings and their observations at the time and their thought process. But we know what they did. We know what the officers did. We know what George Floyd did. We know what the people in the car with George Floyd at the beginning of the encounter um, did to to at least some extent. There's a little bit of uh, unknown about what was happening in the car when the police approached. But we know that he went into a store, uh, was alleged to have passed a, a fake $20 bill, and the police were called. And from there, we have video from the police, from bystanders, from security cams at the Chinese restaurant, from the police uh, surveillance camera across the street. It, it really is, um, it, it's an interesting and new dynamic to have so much objective footage and not have to weigh any kind of he said, she said in this trial. Adam Taylor is a legislative analyst for Bloomberg Government. Adam, thanks for joining me. 
Thanks for having me. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn and Adam Taylor. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.